Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 39 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today's guest really needs no introduction. It is the queen of SIBO herself, Dr. Alison Seebecker. Dr. Seebecker is a naturopathic doctor and has brought SIBO into the limelight of alternative and complementary medicine. She was the co-founder and former medical director of the SIBO Centre for Digestive Health at NCNM Clinic and has specialised in the treatment of SIBO since 2010. Dr. Seebecker is passionate about education and is the instructor of advanced gastroenterology at NCNM, coordinator of the 2014 and 2015 SIBO symposiums, teaches continuing education classes for physicians and is the author of the free educational website SIBO Info. And today's episode is the first in a series of live podcast recordings that I did whilst touring around the US. And this episode comes to you live from Eight Hearts in Portland, where Dr. Seebecker and I talk about the migrating motor complex. This is something that uh, many people with SIBO hear about, and I wanted to clarify what it actually does and what it doesn't do, and whether the migrating motor complex, or MMC as it's often called, is responsible for us going to the toilet. Sometimes I hear people saying, oh, my MMC is working and therefore I'm going to the toilet. So I answer many questions that people have around it and what we can do to support it. I hope you enjoy today's live recording with an audience of the Healthy Gut Podcast coming to you live from Eight Hearts in Portland. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. I'm doing a live podcast recording here in gorgeous Portland at Eight Hearts and I'm joined today by Dr. Alison Seebecker. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And we've got a great audience. Hooray! <laughs> so it's really wonderful to be on tour across uh, the US and Canada and, and being able to meet all of my just gorgeous listeners. So thanks for coming along, everybody. Um, so, Dr. Seebecker, welcome back to the Healthy Gut Podcast. You Thank were, you. You were my first guest. Yay! All those months ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? It was almost a year ago. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to Dr. Seebecker's um, interview with me, 
all those months ago. They're really great. It's a really great foundation as to what SIBO is. So I do recommend you go back to listen to episodes two and three uh, because she really covers the, the basics of SIBO, which is perfect when you are just recently diagnosed. But tonight we're going to delve into some, uh, some further along questions that generally come up and I was able to go out to my community and ask what they wanted to hear from you about and we're going to be talking all about the migrating motor complex um, as well as prokinetics and bowel movements bowel movements something we talk about all the time you never would think that you would talk about going to the toilet as much as you do when you have SIBO (laughs) and the number of conversations you have with complete strangers about what you do on the toilet (laughs) So let's start with the migrating motor complex because what I do see is that there's often quite a bit of confusion around what it is, what it does, what it doesn't do. So can we start with the basics? What is the migrating motor complex? Yeah, so how many people here have heard about it? It's pretty much everybody. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so it's um, it's a form of movement that happens in the small intestine. Um, of course, right now I'm speaking to the converted, but for people listening um, who aren't in the room, uh, it happens in the small intestine, and it's called the housekeeper wave um, as its nickname. And its primary purpose is actually to clear the small intestine of bacteria and it moves downward and moves them into the large intestine Um, because gastrointestinal anatomy is that we have the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, then the small intestine, then the large intestine. So, um, but it, um, it only happens during fasting. That's the special thing about it. Uh, So there's another form of movement that most of us know about that would move our food down and that is not moving our food down very much at all. That, and that's just what we call peristalsis. And that is more of a mixing, uh, a mixing churning motion that barely at all pushes down, really. It just sort of, because, because once we get into the small intestine, that motion, it's sort of like mix, mix, mix. Then the food is getting absorbed. So there's not as much stuff to push. So it doesn't need to be very pushy. <laughs> so it's more of just uh, making sure the food's being presented to the walls of the small intestine and then and very mildly moving downward. Uh, whereas the migrating motor complex is meant to really push down fast and um, thoroughly and vigorously because it's cleaning up. It's cleaning up after the meal. So it also clears away any other things that are there in the small intestine, like um, little bits of fiber or debris or something like that. And along with it comes some secretions, a little bit of bile, a little bit of enzymes, meant almost like soap, meant to just clean, um, digest anything that's left there, you know, kill anything that's there, and then push it all out. So what Dr. Pimentel says is it's like uh, washing the dishes after you ate a meal. It's like you, you wash up, you, you clean up. So, so when we say it happens during fasting, what that means is between meals, because normally the way we're made as humans is we shouldn't just be like eating constantly. We're not made as a grazing species, and this is how you know, because we have this migrating motor complex that cleans after eating, and then um, it happens at night when we're sleeping, unless we're like sleepwalking and going to the refrigerator. <laughs> so, But we should be not eating, so that's what happens is between meals and overnight. And it, it occurs on a cycle. It takes about... Um, anywhere from an hour and a half or two hours to four hours to do one cycle. So it just repeats through and, um, and just keeps cleaning until we eat again. And jumping the gun here, what a lot of people start to think about and ask is, well, what kind of, what, 
because it will be turned off when we eat. So then what people want to know is, well, what would turn it off? Like, would my coffee turn it off, you know, with cream or, you know, how big of a meal? And, you know, what about water and all these questions? And honestly, we don't really know. Um, So all we know for sure is that a meal turns it off. And is there a way that we can um, determine whether our migrating motor complex is or is not working? Um, Not so much for us. I mean, I guess the way we would know whether it's working is if somebody doesn't have gastrointestinal symptoms. So (laughs) because, which of course, gastrointestinal symptoms can come from a lot of other things besides that, but that's going to be one of the things it's going to cause. We know that when it shuts down, then that's called a motility disorder, and then you have gastrointestinal symptoms. But the main way that a person would know, which is not an easy way, is to get a test called an antroduodenal manometry. And it's only done at, I think, three maybe or four centers in the U.S. I don't know about Australia. Um, So it's done at two places in Los Angeles and one of the Mayos, I think. Um, And what it is is it's like if a person has ever had an endoscopy. It's a tube that's passed through the mouth and the throat, through the stomach, and into the small intestine, the top of the small intestine. And it has pressure sensors. And then the tube just sits there. Like you hang out for like maybe six hours or so. And then to see, and you're, you haven't eaten, and it, then it's recording. Are you doing these migrating motor complex waves? And it can tell by the exact pattern of pressure that it's detecting. And, um, and then if... Like the way Dr. Pimentel does this test is at the end, he'll, he'll sort of do a challenge and he'll give erythromycin. A re- we'll talk more about this, but erythromycin is a prokinetic at a low dose. And prokinetic stimulates the migrating motor complex. So even though most people might know erythromycin as an antibiotic, it has multiple purposes and uses. And when it's used in a low dose it stimulates migrating motor complex. So he'll give that uh, through an IV to see now record did it make a migrating motor complex and you know in some people it might not and then he knows okay they are totally shut down we can't even make one happen what's going on here um in all the patients that i've sent down it it did so so when you know which is good that means if we use prokinetics if we use erythromycin we can get one to happen so it can still work it just needs help it's not and you know because a lot of times in this test we'll see that it's he might have had they might have done one migrating motor complex wave and maybe inadequately in the whole six hours of the test so we know they're not really doing it but then when he gave the erythromycin it happened and it happened well and good so then we know we need to assist you know something's wrong so uh, that's how we officially know. It's expensive. You know, it's invasive. You, most people have to travel for it. This is one of the things that has bothered me so much about SIBO in general is we think that one of the main most common reasons people have it um, as an underlying physiological cause is poor function of the migrating motor complex. And yet we have no way to actually test and assess that in our patients except for this. So there is another way that's being being developed um and it's acoustic and i thought it had actually come out on the market but i have to double check where we it it could be something done in office it could be even something people take home and rest upon them um and they've been able to correlate the sounds that it it depicts with the antroduodenal manometry and to know what is a migraine migrating motor complex and whatnot when when that happens it's going to change a lot of things for a lot of us because then we'll be able to really know do i have a deficient migrating motor complex or is it just not working right or or not and can and also then we could take uh, prokinetic and put it on us and check 
is that one stimulating a migrating motor complex for me or not? You know, so I can't wait for that to fully come out. That's amazing. That will that will really be quite uh, life changing for people to know for sure whether that is an underlying cause. One thing I hear a lot and I see a lot in the chat rooms is my migrating motor complex isn't working because I don't go to the toilet. Is that a correct assumption? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I could see why someone would think that because we have this tube and then you just think that the movement is continuous, but it's not. Um, Each section of of the GI tract has its own separate motility that and because most of the sections are um sort of separated from each other by valves and and the valves are closed you know if everything's working right and then the anatomy actually changes beyond that valve to the new area so like the throat has a different motility than the stomach than the small intestine and then the large intestine they they look if you study you know anatomy or physiology and medical stuff you see they all look different they have different cells and so the migrating motor complex can be slow and it's thought to be the main reason a lot of people have SIBO and yet they have SIBO of the diarrhea type. So that's probably extremely common. Um, you have a slow motility in the small intestine, but a fast motility in the large intestine. And, um, you know, of course you can have SIBO of the constipation type and, but you know, so then that means your motility in the large intestine is not working well either, but it also, you know, also you have slow motility of the, of the small intestine, but basically the movement is not continuous. So the migrating motor complex doesn't just go down the small intestine and then go through the large intestine and produce a bowel movement. In fact, the migrating motor complex stops about two thirds of the way down. It doesn't even go to the end of the small intestine the end of the small intestine has its own motility, which has different names altogether. And then the large intestine has different motility. And the ones that cause the bowel movements are called uh, mass motor movements. So it's the MMM <laughs> of, the, of the large bowel. And it starts to get like, who, like this is too confusing. I don't care, stop talking. So the answer, right? Cause it's like, well, but the answer is it's separate motilities. That's really interesting and I, and I do hope for my listeners listening to today's podcast that they're like, oh, okay, I understand now. And particularly when, like myself included, when I first started going through my SIBO treatment and I went on to a prokinetic, I started taking Motul Pro and it was literally like, hallelujah, there was, I was going to the toilet for the first time um, every day in about the four-week mark, four- to six-week mark. But I was also doing my SIBO treatment and then I was on the diet and, like, things had changed so dramatically. But I think because I was taking this thing that was called a prokinetic, I just went, oh, that's what's making me go to the toilet. Um, so hopefully that that's cleared that up for, for the listeners. Um, I've talked on my podcast previously. I've had um, several guests talk about the benefits of fasting and the migrating motor complex. And um, I myself fast twice a week. I do uh, generally um, when I'm not travelling and I'm, and I'm in my normal routine, a, a Monday and a Wednesday fast and I love it. I feel amazing when I'm only eating dinner on those days. There's a lot of concern with people around, okay, well, I hear that there are these benefits for the migrating motor complex, but I'm severely underweight and malnourished. I'm really scared to fast, but I want to fast because of the migrating motor complex. I'd like to sort of talk to you around the pros and cons of fasting and whether we should all be doing it, whether the benefits outweigh 
the risks or if, or if there are certain people, perhaps those that are severely underweight, that perhaps fasting is not for them? I mean, the answer is always going to be in medicine that nothing applies to everybody. So we can never say that everybody should be should be doing it. Um, it's optional that you know doing so what the recommendation is is to leave four hours between meals um, you know without snacking. And it used to be that Dr. Pimentel recommended three hours and he changed it to four and when I implemented that with my patients and even with myself, um, people could really tell the difference. It was it, they really clinically felt better. Um, it just gave a little bit more time for that migrating motor complex. So uh, it's optional though. And that's important to remember, you know, people get, um, when they have this disease and many others, they think these recommendations, they are like come from God or something. And um, no, we can tailor everything to the person, you know. So uh, what I would say is give it a try and see if the benefit is worth whatever negative it causes. Now, for people who are underweight, I don't think it's a good idea to, to do that for, like, have the four hours between each um, each meal in the beginning when we're trying to have them gain weight. I think if they have the overnight uh, fast, that might even just be enough. Maybe if they have one other period in the day where there's four hours, that's, an, that's one way to do it. And so then go ahead and snack in the rest of, of the time. Uh, another way to do it, is to eat really big meals and more, you know, at the meals, um, as well as, you know, or you can add more snacking. We, we have to customize it to people. I'm, I'm definitely concerned. Um, being underweight, I think, takes precedence. It, it may not in every case, but it t- depends on the severity of it. I think it takes precedence then, because we're doing other treatments, um, and you're you're not you're fasting overnight so I think it's more important to maybe eat more often um and not not worry so much about it the other thing a person can do is go as go as long as as they feel makes sense for them so maybe cut it down to three hours maybe make it two and a half so and I think the key thing really is that customization personalizing it to you as an individual rather than what a guide says or what you've read in a in one of the online groups that like someone saying, oh, well, you must fast for 12 hours plus, plus, plus. What about long, longer period fasting, such as, you know, a two-day fast, a three-day fast? Are there, can you get then incremental benefits to fasting by doing it for longer periods of time? I think so, yeah. Um, again, we have to balance that with negatives. I don't think there's any studies on this you know like particularly with SIBO and what the fasting might do but uh, and I think it's going to be different for each person but in general when people I mean because the thing is eating causes the symptoms right so the more people go without eating the better they feel (laughs) but I do think it's allowing some more migrating motor maybe tonification Um, but this is speculative so anyone listening who's like oh now is she saying that I have to go and fast for three days no you know no it's just you're asking so yeah I think there can be and I think you know someone like myself who does not have an issue with uh, being underweight and my challenge is that I find it very difficult to lose weight I actually find the, the fasting 
beneficial for just giving me that extra helping hand when it comes to trying to keep weight off. Whereas I know that uh, my partner who is a super metabolizer and he just drops weight, it falls off him. It makes me sick how much it falls (laughs) off him. (laughs) Uh, He can't do more than two fasts um, without, you know, it's starting to be problematic for him. You know, he'll drop a kilo, so about two pounds, from a from a one-day fast where he only eats one meal, whereas I'm like, oh, I'd love to lose that kind of weight in a one-day fast. <laughs> but your, your fasting has been around forever as a healing technique, both uh, medically and spiritually, um, and there's also problems people can run into, so we just have to make sure that it's working for that person. A question that... Um, one of my listeners asked was, is meals spacing slash fasting for life or is it just a temporary measure while we're going through SIBO treatment? Well, if you think about what we were saying earlier, humans are designed not as grazing species. So it it truly is biologically how we're meant how we're meant to be is to leave some space between our meals. You know, how much, I don't exactly know. I mean, I'm sure that's different for each person. So I, I feel like biologically that would be the healthy choice. Um, but lots of people don't do that. Uh, so if a person wants to return to eating more often, go right ahead. You know, I mean, it's like there's no hard and fast rule here. We're just saying that, that is, that's the general uh, way that humans are made is not to graze. With regards to nerve stimulation or lack thereof from uh, something like post-infectious IBS, is that nerve damage that perhaps is in negatively impacting the migrating motor complex, is that for life or is that something that is just temporary while the body recovers from that infection and that it then re- returns? This is the $50,000 million <laughs> question. Um, there's evidence from the studies done on post-infectious IBS that that 50% of those people spontaneously heal within five years. And then after that, um, it's not looking so good for the rest of the 50%. And it's not exactly sure why. Some of the reasons why in the studies are that um, people get food poisoning again. And then that reactivates things. So we're not sure. Maybe the healing would have happened, but then a new assault came. Um, But so it's encouraging to know that, at least in the studies that were done, uh, people with post-infectious IBS, 50% seem to get better. But then what about that other 50%? So this is what Dr. Pimentel's research has been focusing on, and he's been working on answering these questions and finding um, a solution. And... um, he has seen, uh, he has clinically seen people that have had uh, SIBO with this circumstance, with nerve damage, get better over time. Uh, like, you know, they didn't get better in five years, but then they did get better after 10. So that's very encouraging. Um, and what he has seemed to show is that there seems to be an ongoing autoimmune damage to those nerves. Because what we know is that uh, those cells in the intestine have a fast turnover and should be able to heal. They're very plastic, meaning they can, um, they can repair well. So they should be able to repair themselves pretty quickly. This is one of the things that is so confusing, I think, to the researchers looking at this. They're like, Why, what's going on here? So they think what it is, is that there's an ongoing autoimmune 
damage. So I think that's where his research is focusing is how to turn that off. So I, I think, I think he will find a solution. Um, I think, but we don't, we don't have it yet. So the answer is we don't fully know what's going, what's going on in these people, but this is what we suspect. And I think he'll, he'll have some solutions for us, but they're not out yet. Fair enough. And what about, um, you know, we're thinking about that, that flow of the digestive system and we think about the stomach. Does low stomach acid have an impact? <laughs> this is the other one. <laughs> this is the other question she wrote down. I'm like, oh, my God. So um, I have to look at my notes because this is like, this is hard. Um, <laughs> you know, we've got a test, Dr. Seebecker here. We've got her in, in person and we can well, ask you, you all know, these tricky questions. Because you think, you just think like, that should be a simple question, right? But then if you actually look like people don't actually don't know, you know, so... So we can just start out with the basics. What we know is if your stomach acid is too low, that's a problem. <laughs> we for, for good digestion and good health, you need to have the uh, proper stomach acid. Too low meaning it's not acidic enough. You don't have enough acidity. So uh, that's, that's really the answer that matters here is that um, it's going to impact your digestion negatively and you need to have it be, f- be fixed if you can um, I- at all. But... Technically, what's known in the studies, just in case you want to know this, is that if you have a properly acidic environment, uh, more acidic, it can make the migrating motor complex last longer. I don't actually know if that's good or not, but it seems good. It seems good, like maybe it works longer. Um, and, and just for anyone who's very technically minded, uh, it seems like what really seems to turn it on, uh, at least from an animal model, so this could be wrong, is uh, when you have acid in your stomach, then it moves down into the duodenum, which is the top of the small intestine. That then triggers some release of uh, basically like baking soda, bicarbonate, because then now it's out of the stomach and you want to now stop that acid. That release of bicarbonate is what seems to trigger the migraine motor complex to start. So the acid, so I see you, I like you're technically minded, yeah. So the, the acid, you, so basically, if you had low stomach acid, then that whole process wouldn't happen. But this is tenuous and animal model-based. Mm. But So yeah. what really matters is what I said in the beginning. It's a problem if you have too low stomach acid. Yeah. And I think that, that that's the thing that I, I keep thinking of and I have learned so much about since two and a half years ago when I got that SIBO diagnosis, which is the small intestine isn't in isolation it's part of one whole long system. And if one part's not working correctly, you know, it makes sense that other parts might not be working co- correctly. And now I can see that oh, a whole bunch of parts weren't working correctly. I was just focusing on my small intestine. Prokinetics is something that there's a lot of discussion around prokinetics. Should you have prokinetics? Shouldn't you have prokinetics? When should you have them? Should you do them in treatment? Should you wait after treatment? Um, So let's start at the beginning in terms of let's just talk about what prokinetics actually are um, just to set the scene and then we can answer some of those questions. Okay, so they would be either like uh, pharmacological medicines or natural items, um, herbs and supplements that stimulate gastrointestinal motility in general, but in specific, uh, in a coordinated fashion. So they would maybe, if we're talking about the esophagus and the stomach, they would, as you're swallowing, they would open this sphincter 
between the esophagus and the stomach, and then and close this one, and then and then they would then open this one and close this one. You know, so they they everything is about making sure the movement is going down, and that's very important because a lot of people have problems where the movement is going backward, like with acid reflux and such. So prokinetics are meant not just to stimulate uh, motility, but also in a coordinated fashion, and they can stimulate motility anywhere in the tract, but some are better at some locations than others. And uh, what's very highly prized in medicine is when you have one that stimulates more of the upper, uh, like for people who have acid reflux or who have gastroparesis where the stomach isn't emptying. People who have that, uh, they, they feel their stomach, actu- uh, their food sitting in their stomach long after eating and it hasn't even moved down and sometimes it just regurgitates back up and it it just won't even process downward so when we can get a prokinetic to help move that that is very desirable and of course what we're after in SIBO are ones that focus more on the small intestine now when when they a prokinetic or an agent focuses on motility of the large intestine, it's sort of leaving more of the prokinetic realm, and now it's called a laxative. And this is something a lot of people get confused about. What's the difference between a laxative and a prokinetic? A prokinetic can be a laxative because it could, depending upon the match for the person and the dose you're using it in, stimulate a bowel movement. But laxatives are not prokinetics. Uh, most laxatives do not work at stimulating the esophagus or the stomach or the small intestine. So this really confuses a lot of people because we'll put them on an osmotic laxative, let's say, like magnesium or vitamin C. An osmotic laxative, how it works is it's a large molecule and the process of osmosis will occur um, in the intestines where a water balance wants to happen. And so water will be drawn in to the large intestine um, and then the water helps, you know, Uh, fluff up the stool and make it move out. Um, And so they'll say, well, I don't need a prokinetic because I'm taking magnesium. But magnesium does absolutely nothing to stimulate the migrating motor complex. And that is our whole task with a prokinetic. So this is what happens to a lot of people. And, uh, And it's this is a confusing topic, and I've had patients who are smart, and we've worked together for years, and still, after like four years, they're like, but I'm on magnesium, I don't need a prokinetic. It's like we just have to say it over and over and over because who, people aren't thinking about all these parts and what part is moving what, you know, so. Mm. So that's what so it is. interesting, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when should we be using a prokinetic? Right. Um, there's two ways to use it. Uh, the way that probably most people think about using it with SIBO is after you've done your antimicrobial treatment, to sort of hold the gains you made. What we're trying to do is stimulate the migrating motor complex on the assumption that most people have deficient migrating motor complex, although not everyone might, uh, because we don't have that test in everyone, but since most people have that problem, so that you don't sort of like slide backward while you're waiting for your test, or maybe you can't get into the doctor for a month or two or something before your next treatment round, because often people need more than one round, not always, but often, because gas is high in a lot of people or it's tricky. So uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that if we move the migrating motor complex appropriately, like I was explaining with erythromycin, that we won't have new accumulation 
um, so that we, we, we stay where we just got you to. So in that way, it's used as sort of a prevention of relapse. And so this would be between rounds or once you're sort of finished and you, you feel better and your test is negative, um, then you would continue them to prevent a relapse. Now before, I want to talk about that. So like how long would you need to do that? But before that, let me say the other way you would use it. The other way to use prokinetics is to help symptoms. Um, that's the main way prokinetics are used by doctors like for gast gastroparesis. Um, of course, they're also trying to affect the whole reason that you're having that symptom. But So it can be used for acid reflux. It can be used for bloating. They can help you know move gas and food through the intestines. It can be used for constipation if you use it in a high enough dose and you're getting that uh, lower stimulation, which not all do. I think if you go to a high enough dose with most of them, you will reach that point. So um, I often give prokinetics right at the beginning just to get someone some symptomatic relief. So, you, they, so that means they can be taken from day one uh, all the way through. You can take them during treatment. Uh, a lot of times we, will, we won't do them during treatment because we're kind of trying to save you money and we're doing something to help the symptoms and you, you don't need to continue if we're not giving them to you for a major symptom. It kind of depends on the level and the case. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, definitely. And again, it's so, it's so personal to the individual like you like, like you're certainly not about. doing it wrong if you're on them the whole time you're not doing it wrong if you only take them after you know there's a lot of leeway here a question that i do get asked quite a lot is are they really necessary to um like should i be doing them as my SIBO relapse preventative measure it's a good question because it costs money you have to remember to do it you know a lot of people don't want to do it the only way we would really know is if we had that antroduodenomanometry, right? So we have to guess. This is very frustrating for all of us. Um, but I can tell you this. Uh, I think it's essential. It's not going to be essential in the one-third of cases that are not chronic. Uh, how do we know that? <laughs> Ahead of time, we don't. So unless we had that test or whatever. So, you know, about a third of cases of SIBO um, are resolved fairly quickly and they don't relapse ever. I've, you know, if, if, if people in here have challenging cases, you'll be like, what? You know? And so, but then the people who don't have challenging cases are like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This is done. Yeah. So anyway, I have, I have doctor friends who see the less uh, complicated cases and, like one friend of mine who works here in Portland, she treats a lot of SIBO cases and she's primary care. They come back all the time for other reasons. And it's, you know, she'll treat their SIBO, it gets gone, test is negative. Uh, she sees them ongoing years now. They have never t complained about gastrointestinal symptoms again. So just want you to know it can happen. <laughs> so 
Uh, I what I've seen for the people who it's chronic is it's very very helpful. I think it's essential. I've seen case after case. Seems like a good portion of people come to me where the one thing that's missing out of their whole treatment protocol is the prokinetic. We get them on the prokinetic and lo and behold, they do so much better. Their relapses start spacing out now. Uh, They respond quicker to treatment. So I really think it's important. How you're going to know is you're going to try it and see. And how long do you need to stay on a prokinetic? Is this a month? Is it a year? Is it life? So when we don't know anything about how it's going to go, we generally say, three months. Um, I will say that doctor friend I was talking about, she does six months uh, just as an insurance. And she usually uses LDN, one of the prokinetics that we can use because she has a lot of autoimmune patients with uh, um, other conditions. It's helpful for that. So three to six months without knowing any better. But if you know that you have a chronic case, you're at that state already. Um, If you know you have a positive IBS check and um, which is how you know if you had post-infectious IBS, or food poisoning induced uh, SIBO, if you've had your SIBO more than five years, anything like this, then you would consider long-term. And that's what we do. We just keep keep people on them ongoing. Uh, how long? I mean, Dr. Pimentel has had patients on them for maybe 10 years or more, where in fact he sees oftentimes they can then get off. So you can always do a trial removal at any time. Like if your intuition is like, I don't want to take this anymore, follow that. Or you're just sick of it, whatever. You know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, right? So the only risk is relapse. So if, you know, if, if you're feeling like, yeah, I got an intuition. If if you t- go off the prokinetic slowly, what happens in a lot of my patients, they can start to catch a relapse kind of before it really gets going. Um, while they're slowly coming off of it, they're like, yeah, I think, think I need a little bit more of this prokinetic. But what we'll often find is people can move to three times a week of their prokinetic. They don't have to take it every night or maybe twice a week. I have patients, they can totally tell, no, it has to be three times. If I go below that, I relapse, you know. And if you start relapsing, then just get in there with treatment. Actually, what we'll do for a lot of people, we'll just bring back the full prokinetic dose, and if we catch it quick enough, they don't even have to do treatment. That was that was enough to correct it. So um, the answer is not one size fits all, which is frustrating for people, but the truth. So at you know, I would say long term in these chronic cases, and stop it whenever you or your doctor want to, and see how it goes. A question that I got asked, which I thought was a really good question um, for people that are wondering, is it. Is it better to have two uh, types of prokinetics at once so that you get more power or one prokinetic? Because I'm, And I'm assuming that that question came from them thinking about their herbs, that you know they'll often be on multiple herbs, two herbs perhaps. Um, what's your view on uh, My view is yes. So in the beginning I was, you know, I was new to prokinetics. A lot of people are pretty skittish about them. I kind of was. And um, because there's a new category for me. And after years and years of using them, all different types of people, uh, particularly because I see a lot of really challenging cases uh, where we've even sent them for antroduodenomanometry and we know that, you know, like they might make one migrating motor complex in a six-hour period. Uh, we do that. We'll give them one at night, one in the morning, and we'll do different ones. And it really does help. It really does work. As I studied prokinetics further, what I realized is out of, there's about six that I use with regularity that most of us, you know, choose from. 
they all have different mechanisms of action. So I think that's why it goes so well to be able to use two at once. So I like it. I don't necessarily take them right at the same time. Um, I suppose you could, but usually we'll stagger them. So we'll do, you know, evening and morning type of thing. Mm, That's so interesting. Um, In terms of um, those of uh, those seaboers that have diarrhea, um, and I know there's some concern that if they have uh, a prokinetic, that it's just going to make the diarrhea worse. Is this the case with prokinetics? Well, it could. Um, so any prokinetic could do that to a person, and it might just be the match. Um, so the first thing I would say, and, this, and the second thing is the dose. So the first thing to do is lower the dose uh, if you get diarrhea from a prokinetic and see if that makes a difference. Um, the next thing to do is try a different one. And I see this a lot. So there might just be, and it's different in every person. So let's just ask, use an example. We put someone on lotus or rethromycin and they get diarrhea and cramping and it's awful, you know? And so we cut the dose down, no, okay. Then we give them percalipride and everything's great. And they're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. The next person goes on percalipride and gets diarrhea and cramping. I put them on erythromycin and it's lovely and a perfect match. So you can't just assume that the one medicine, it works different in different people. So, and I also will stress that uh, we can put people on the most innocuous things, like a general dietary supplement, and they'll get diarrhea. So we have to remember this, that, you know, it, I honestly don't feel from my experience that prokinetics are even any more likely to cause diarrhea because we, we give them at low dose than most anything else we give. So the, the really important thing to remember for the diarrhea patients is that we're, we're not supposed to be inducing a bowel movement with our prokinetics. We use them at low dose, and what we're supposed to be doing is stimulating the migrating motor complex, not a bowel movement. Now, I mean, I've had the occasional patient where they've tried every single prokinetic, and it does give them diarrhea. This is pretty rare, but yeah, I've seen that. You know, I've also seen uh, constipated patients where we tried every prokinetic at super high dose and it didn't give them a bowel movement. So, you know, whatever. You have these things that happen. Let's talk about bowel movements. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are the bane of our existence. We either have too many of them or we don't have nearly enough and we spend so much time thinking about going to the toilet. How important is it for us to have a daily bowel movement? Is this something, is this like the gold standard of bowel movements? Do we, do we want to be aiming for that? And, and if we're not having bowel movements, can we be making our SIBO worse by having all of that waste sitting oh, within us? These are very good questions. Okay, um, it's important to have a bowel movement every day. It's important because that's how humans were designed, just like we're talking about the not grazing. But the reason I'm not going like, you know, da-da-da-da-da on this is because people get what is called anal, right, about this. They get obsessed with having a lot of bowel movements and daily bowel movements. And, I mean, it's kind of like a a big thing that went through the 70s and the 80s in our culture, right? You know what I'm talking about. And, and, and then parents obsessing over their kids, but, you know, and then they kind of create these fixations. So I, I would want to not encourage that uh, sort of stress. But uh, on the other hand, we are designed to eliminate waste in the form of a bowel movement daily, once daily. So it's important, uh, but please don't get obsessive. You know? But if you are not 
going regularly, like if you skip a day here and there, I guess that's fine. But if you're a constipated patient and you really don't go, we would encourage you to use something like magnesium or vitamin C or, or whatever to help you to go. It will it will help you feel better. It makes your body work and feel better. You do need to eliminate on a regular basis. Um, now, the second part of the question was, could it make your SIBO worse? There actually are some uh, studies about, particularly with methane type, that um, eliminating really does help lower methanogens. So it's, it, it's more important for the constipated methanogen people to actually have symptomatic relief if, if they're not getting it cured yet. Like get right in there with some magnesium from the start and have a daily bowel movement. And we're not trying to cause diarrhea or purging. Because that was another question, right? Was what it should look like, right? And that is the next question, <laughs> what it should look like. Because one of the things that I realized two and a half years ago was that I thought that my very infrequent bowel movements were normal because it had been my normal. And it was only when I started going through SIBO treatment and I started going to the toilet every day, I was like, oh, my Lord, this is incredible. <laughs> I never knew how good you could feel just going and doing a poo every day. This is amazing. <laughs> um, because I would literally go to the toilet once or twice a week for months and then I'd swing into a, a phase of diarrhoea. And then I'd be sitting on the toilet going, yeah, I'm going to lose five kilos. Like, this is amazing. And I'd put on weight. And then I wouldn't go to the toilet for a week and a half. And then it would kind of ro go back into my cycle. And, and then I'd go to, you know, once or twice a week. But that was my normal. So what should our um, bowel movement look like? What should we be hoping to see in the toilet bowl? So what's considered normal is a smooth log. That's what's normal. So there's a chart that, you know, people get all obsessed about called a Bristol stool chart. And it shows the different textures of how uh, a stool could look. And that's number four. And that's the normal in the middle. Um, as it gets more fluid in it, more water in it, it gets looser. And eventually it's just, uh, it's just fully liquid. That's diarrhea. And then as we get into balls, that's more constipation. And so you could have a log that's balls stuck together that's tending more towards constipation and then you could just have you know one little pellet the size of a marble come out and that's it you know and that's that was your bowel movement and that's constipation so uh the texture should be a smooth log that's what we're looking for and again i would encourage not to be obsessed about this <laughs> another thing i found really amazing as i went through my SIBO treatment was the aroma changed of my poo and I'd never you said thought aroma much. aroma so aroma. beautifully. Like it made me think you were going to talk about, you know, perfumes and flowers. Well, I am a cook after all, so it's all about what things smell like. But for me, it was fascinating. Pre-SIBO treatment, and obviously I had this, um, you know, I had this waste product sitting in me for days and days and days, but the aroma was a lot stronger. And then when I went through SIBO treatment, there was virtually nothing. Should we be, you know... Does the aroma of our waste indicate the health of our bowels and our um, digestive tract? It can, um, but there's more things that affect that that um, we wouldn't want to pin everything on that. Uh, but it definitely can. It's certainly a signal for various things. I mean, one of the things we do talk about is when someone has a hydrogen sulfide type SIBO that there can be a more sulfurous odor, uh, a garlicky, oniony, and egg type odor. 
Um, just sulfur odor is the odor that most people associate with as a bad uh, fart smell or a, a bad bowel movement smell. So, but that's not it. There's other other smells. There's other ways you can have issues, and diet can have an Im- impact in that too. So, I had a housemate um, around the time I was going through this treatment who. Um, I would say had an alcohol problem. He drank quite heavily every night, and oh my gosh, if if I um, needed to go to the toilet after he'd been in, it, you literally had to hold your breath. It was so incredibly horrific, <laughs> and I and it really stood out to me as as I obviously cleaned my diet right up as I went through SIBO treatment, and I was eating such clean food and no alcohol, no sugar, none of that stuff. Just the difference in the waste smell between two individuals and you know also um breath and even body odor uh like underarm odor it's not really just about SIBO but in we're just talking about generally when someone chooses a healthier lifestyle you'll often find that to change for the Mm. for the benefit you know less smell (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! that's always good for those around us um so if we are experiencing constipation or diarrhea, do you have any kind of handy tips on how we can manage that? Well, yes. First off, I've got a, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I've got a handout of symptomatic reliever. Um, it's called SIBO Symptomatic Relief Suggestions. It's a free handout on my website, which is a free educational website, SIBOinfo.com. And there's a section for resources handouts. You can just download it. Um, and so I probably won't remember to say them all. It's, you know, it's a front and back page. But um, for constipation, we've got uh, magnesium. And some little tips I could suggest would be, um, you can try any different type you want, but the most Technically, the most laxative would be form of magnesium would be oxide, magnesium oxide. Some people don't like that one, and they like citrate better, but that's the one that's the most laxative. And people who are constipated don't realize they need often around 1,500 milligrams. Um, sometimes it's just 1,000. So, but Because what I often hear is people will take a 150-milligram pill and say, magnesium did nothing for me. It's like, well, of course not. You, you need to go up to 1,000 or 1,200 or something like that. The dose is individual, but that's just a key thing I wanted to mention. Vitamin C is another one. Um, these are osmotic laxatives. The dose on that is quite individual. So I I don't even want to take a stab at that. Um, Some simple things are sometimes in the morning, if you take warm water, sort of drunk slowly, and a little bit of oil, that will help a lot of people. Um, And um, sometimes, uh, I mean, these are old techniques, but sometimes um, like abdominal massage will help, and sometimes exercise helps. Sometimes eating helps because it, we were just talking about these reflexes that well, we have in the GI tract. Uh, we're stimulated to have a bowel movement when the stomach senses distension, like we've taken in some food. It's a mechanism. It's like, oh, there's incoming. Better get the old stuff out. you know. And then in a lot of us, that's not working very well, but uh, that can help people. Um, so th- that's where I would start. Uh, and then, of course, you can get into your SIBO treatments. But there's probiotics can help. I mean, sometimes bile acids can help. Sometimes hydrochloric acid can help. All the things of digestion. Sometimes enzyme help. But those are the, the first ones I'd think of. Um, for diarrhea, uh, there's classic over-the-counters like Imodium, uh, which can help a lot of people. There's uh, Saccharomyces boulardii, a probiotic that many people find will help and probiotics in general, enzymes, uh, digestive enzymes are well studied to help slow diarrhea. Uh, might not work in a person, but these are always things we can try. And a key thing with, um, with diarrhea is 
the concern is electrolyte loss from fluid loss. So it's it's important to know you're taking enough electrolytes. So you can take that in pills. You could take it in solution. You can home make your own. That handout has suggestions. Um, there's also things like binding agents like charcoal. Um, charcoal is very helpful for bloating, but it can cause constipation. It doesn't do that in everybody, but uh, if you take enough of it, it can also slow, uh, if it does that, it can slow diarrhea. So there's things, and fiber, fiber can help slow diarrhea. Fiber can also cause diarrhea. So fiber is a tricky one with SIBO patients because it can make some things worse. It can make all the symptoms worse. And then sometimes it can help some of the symptoms and certain fibers help and others don't, but it, it is a consideration. Are there any long-term side effects um, or concerns around long-term use of things like laxatives or magnesium or vitamin C or even prokinetics? Um, the, uh, it's interesting. So with laxatives, as far as we know, there's no concern with magnesium. I actually had a very smart student of mine who's now a doctor uh, who's a researcher. This is Dee. <laughs> I had her look into this to be sure, and she could find no uh, reports of uh, concerns of long-term magnesium or even vitamin C use to bowel tolerance. Uh, the only concern would be electrolytes if you're, you know, if you're doing that. Um, there are doses at which it's not okay, but those are not the doses that I've just talked about. Um, but there's this uh, belief that Stimulant laxatives are habit-forming. So these would be things like Cascara Sagrada or Senna, um, Aloe, uh, uh, are habit-forming. But I've read a whole bunch of articles debunking that myth by gastroenterologists. They, so there was, there's been some articles by like, look, this is what we all think. Is it true? And turns out it's not. So, but what they can do is they can... Uh, create sort of a black pigment in the large intestine that will be seen when you get a colonoscopy. And this is extremely common. And then because it is a a, a normal belief that laxatives are habit forming and that this is bad for you, the doctor who performs the colonoscopy will invariably tell you, you are using too much and stop either blackening your, you know, intestines or whatever, darkening them and it's habit forming. So, um, I still, I'm having a hard time with that because my whole life I was taught they're habit forming. Uh, but the, I mean, some of the top gastroenterologists in the world are writing these articles. So apparently it's okay. So, you know, now prokinetics, um, I know of no uh, issue for long term use that there's not been any study saying, you know, like erythromycin has been used for gastroparesis. The, the biggest problem is it stops working. That's what, that's what really the trouble is with long term use. It's not. Uh, we have no studies to show any safety issues for continuous use. And as with everything, we just keep evolving and learning. And, uh, you know, once held beliefs often change. I know. As we learn so much more. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> what about things like coffee enemas or colonic irrigation as a, as a way to um, be supportive or, you know, a way of clearing out the bowel for chronic constipation? Yeah, a lot of people love those. But particularly what my patients tell me is that I have never told anyone to do it, maybe I should, is coffee enemas uh, because they have a cleansing effect on the liver and other things and inflammation. But people generally feel better when they do them. That's an alternative to taking like an oral laxative, certainly. Um, it's just you have to keep doing them, you know. So you have to keep doing your oral one too until we get the problem solved. So, uh, yeah, it's a fine method. Mm. And 
as I keep uh, reiterating over all of my podcasts, it's really what works for you. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, you don't want to take an oral laxative but you actually are very happy to do a coffee enema, then go for it. Yeah. If it works, it yeah. works. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Alison Seebecker, it's been just a joy to have you on the podcast today. How can people connect with you if they would like to know more about it's all my, the wonderful work you do? It's pretty much my website, which is SIBOinfo.com. Uh, and it's pretty dense for most of you who've looked at it. There's probably places you haven't looked at. So spend some time on it. It's just free. It's there for everyone. And if there's something new going on, I usually post it in the news section. And the big thing is I send a newsletter out, um, but I only send it about four or five times a year usually uh, because I'm not doing it for advertisement purposes. I'm just doing it to keep people up on what's happening. Uh, sometimes I send it out more if there's an event just to, you know, because people need to see things more than once. That's very hard for me to do because I really, I have this constant feeling, I don't want to bother people, you know, because people get too many newsletters, right? Uh, And these blogs and everything. But anyway, uh, it's important to know about that because when new things come out, I put it in the newsletter. And the newsletter is a great resource. And because you aren't sending it out every week, I think it's um, it, there's a lot of value in there. And along with your website where you know I'm, I'm forever sending people to your website and I'm forever looking at your website. So we've mentioned some links there today. Um, so if you're listening to the episode, head to the show notes where you'll be able to click on those links. Uh, and uh, a big thank you to Eight Hearts who have very generously hosted the live recording of the Healthy Gut podcast today. Uh, and thank you to everyone that has come along to watch the show. Uh, So Dr. Alison Seebecker, thank you so much for rejoining us on the Healthy Gut Podcast. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed episode 39 with Dr. Alison Seebecker coming to you live from Eight Hearts in Portland, Oregon. If you would like to get the show notes from today's episode or be able to access any of the links mentioned, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash MMC. And that stands for Migrating Motor Complex. I really love hearing your feedback about the episode, so make sure you head into iTunes or the app you use to listen to this episode and leave a rating and review. It really does help other people know that this is the right podcast for them when it comes to digestive health. And come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, it's another live recording of the Healthy Gut Podcast and we're joined by Dr. Jason Wysocki, who is the founder of Eight Hearts in Portland. We have a fascinating discussion around mind, body and spirit and why this is integral to achieving health and wellness, particularly when we're dealing with a chronic illness like SIBO. So I hope you enjoy next week's episode with Dr. Jason Wysocki. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. 
We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.